0: we're reading 1 Samuel 24 which is about David's forgiveness of Saul or his relationship with Saul let's say and it's really uh, an interesting relationship isn't it David and Saul and you see here how the hand of providence works to to sort of develop this whole thing between David and Saul Uh, well verse 3 Saul and his men are chasing David and his men and in verse 3 Saul comes to a cave where David and his men the AV says remained in the sides of the cave that's a poor translation remained translates a Hebrew word that really means to be living to to to, uh, to dwell so David and his men were living temporarily in this cave a uh, fairly big cave and there they were peering out of the cave and they see wow that's Saul and, and his men wow and they, they come really near them and then suddenly the whole group stop and Saul walks it seems on his own towards the cave where they are and they slunk back you can imagine deeper into the cave and Saul comes in on his own and puts his cloak down and it says verse 3 he went in to cover his feet which seems to be a euphemism for um, going going to the toilet Um, Presumably he was there a while because there was enough time for David and his men to have a brief discussion and for David to go and cut off the, the hem of Saul's robe. So presumably he wasn't feeling well. He just wanted to have a bit of a break and to be on his own. But it was just so bizarre, such a coincidence, it wasn't of course a coincidence, that there they were in a cave spying on Saul and then he he drops everything and and walks right towards them so you can understand why the men of David said verse 4 this is the day of which the Lord said unto you behold I will deliver your enemy into your hand it all seems so uh, providential and of course it, it was And this whole thing about the hand of God, the hand of uh, providence or whatever in our lives that nothing is random chance I mean this sort of thing has happened in our lives an apparently coincidental meeting turns out later on we see that this was clearly God's hand and oddly enough in chapter 26 there's a very similar incident to what we just read here in chapter 24 where David and Abishai go into the into the camp of Saul and they find Saul asleep and again uh, David's supporter says to him go on kill him or I'll kill him and again David says no don't kill him now he's the anointed of the Lord and they take something from Saul and then in the morning David calls out to them and, and says you know what What are you doing here? I had the power to kill Saul and I didn't, etc. And there's this repentance from Saul. So it's a very similar incident. And again, that can only be the hand of providence guiding David's life. Now, within our own lives, if you examine your life, you will see that circumstances repeat in essence. And why is that? Well, it could be that we're given a particular test over a particular issue in our own character or in life, and we fail it and then God in essence gives us the same situation again so that we might learn from our mistakes and do better or we don't fail it and we succeed like I think David did here in chapter 24 and yet God repeats the situation just like any teacher repeats an exercise so that the person learns and in this sense God is with us that man is not alone on this planet, that God is definitely in our lives. But as someone said, the unexamined life is not worth uh, living, or something like that. Um, Insofar as we examine our lives, and don't just exist, and insofar as we try to attach meaning to events... Uh, and that we actually think about our life rather than get up and live every day according to our feelings and our needs, and then go to sleep and get up and exist another day. Um, if we can break out of that and start to see that life is far more than that, life becomes worth living because we see, although we don't see to the end, we, we do see, particularly as I think as the years go by, that God is active in our lives and so in 1 Samuel 26 verse 19 David says to Saul uh, if God has told you to persecute me then okay let me sacrifice to God and get that sorted out but if men have stirred you up to persecute me like this then woe to you and there's a particular point in that because in these two occasions in chapter 24 and chapter 26 David's men had provoked him to slay Saul, but he had not done that. And so the circumstances repeat, not only within our own lives, but between the lives of people. But sometimes there are parallel lives. You meet somebody sometimes who has gone through such an incredibly similar situation to yourself. And it's the similarities, although they're similarities in essence usually. Uh, the similarities are so so similar that you think, wow, how could that be? And why is this? Now, I, I talked just now about putting meaning into events and attaching meaning to events, and, and very often you can't do that. Certainly not at the time. You you, you can't do that. Um, but I think that God raises up these parallels between human lives so that we can learn and so that in some cases through fellowship with each other we can find strength uh, but not always like that in David and the Saul's case the parallels between their lives were really I suppose to encourage David in this position of not being provoked by his men to kill Saul and he was hoping that Saul would learn the same lesson and really when you think about how Jesus coped with temptation in the wilderness all the time he's seeing himself as Israel in the wilderness they were in the wilderness for 40 years he was there 40 days they were put to the test by God that's why he quotes twice in Deuteronomy 8 once in Deuteronomy 6 um his mind is clearly there with Israel in the wilderness. In that sense, the Word of God became living, live, real, relevant, actual for him because he saw that this was a parallel situation. And so why then is the Bible in that sense history? The the history of well, a few hundred people if you put together all the characters in the Bible. You've got let's say a few hundred, that we, we know something about. And why has God chosen them out of all the people that he has intersected with in the, the period of biblical history? Well, he's chosen them, basically, for our sakes, so that we, through comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So then, verse 4 the men of David say to him behold the day of which the Lord said unto unto you behold I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you now there is no such prophecy recorded now that doesn't of itself mean that Gad or somebody had not actually said it maybe it had been said and in that case if it was a real prophecy from God I, I would focus upon the bit that says I will deliver him into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you. So, in that sense, if David had killed Saul at that time, it would not necessarily have been sin. Very often we try to reduce everything to a simple right and wrong, black or white, sin or not sin situation, but it's really not like that. So often, it doesn't actually matter what decision you take. What does matter is your motive. And I think that's why God has set up so many situations like that in our lives, where we have a choice with whom to associate closely, which ecclesia to go to, or whatever. And that there is often no right or wrong in terms of the actual surface level decision or action. It doesn't matter which way you turn. But what does matter is your motive. And I think uh, if this was a prophecy from God, then this would be a classic example. David had to do to Saul what seemed good unto him. And so often it's not a case, as I say, of the decision you take. It's a case of, is this the mature thing? As Paul says, all things are possible unto me. But not all things are expedient. Incidentally, when when we, we read here that David can do whatever seemed good unto him. Uh, The same phrase, same Hebrew phrase, you get again in 2 Samuel 18 verse 4, uh, where he uses the same Hebrew words when he says, this is at the time of Absalom's rebellion, whatever seems good unto you, his people, I will do. Whatever seems good unto you, I will do. But actually he was called, if this is a, a statement from God, I'll deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you we're actually called to do what seems good unto us rather than what seems good to those around us now unfortunately we live in a society where true personality is uh, something that you rarely meet it seems people complain that they can't seem to connect to other people and that's very often I think because there's nothing to connect to in those other people what I mean is that we are individually called by God to do what is right to us. Not to do what is right in the eyes of those around us, but to do what is right according to what we have worked out in our conscience from God's word, to go the way that he has asked us personally to go. That's why at the end of the book of Judges what it says, there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes it's easy to read that as a kind of uh, lament that this wasn't right but in fact I I think it was right there was no king in Israel that's good that's right it was not God's intention that Israel should have a king so because there was no king in Israel every man did what was right in his own eyes well of course they had God's word and the priesthood supposedly to, to guide them that's what should have happened But through that it was God's will that people did what they personally believed in their own convictions was right, not just follow their leader anyway, back here in verse 4 another reading would be that, or another interpretation would be that God didn't actually say this at all what these men said to David um, in, in fact verse 6 when he, David says to his men the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him you could read that and in Kyle and Delich's uh, commentary they make a big deal of this that uh, the Hebrew form of words there they say it is uh, emphatic that the Lord had forbidden him to do this now I don't claim to be any great expert in Biblical Hebrew but I, I can't uh, personally quite see why they read the Hebrew in that way um, if God had said that uh, verse 4 I'll deliver your enemy into your hand and you can do to him whatever you think is is good well would God have then verse 6 forbidden David that he should kill his master well sometimes God does work like that he says you can do what you want but then here's another principle that overrides that um anyway I think I come down on the side that actually when these men say this behold this is the day of which the Lord said to you I'll deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto you I think I read that really as them assuming that this is so the hand of providence that is Saul walking towards our little cave in the middle of nowhere this must be providential and again we're up against a difficult situation because they, these these men did what I suppose we would do they tried to attach a uh, meaning to this event this, uh, their enemy walking towards them on his own right into their cave uh, they tried to attach meaning to that in an inappropriate way just as we can read providence and say yeah well God uh, surely God means me to do this because of this that or the other this providential thing happened this unusual coincidence happened therefore I should do this that or the other when actually, that it's true that God's hand is around somewhere, but we are, as it were, pushing things to lead us to the uh, conclusion we want to. I mean, we see this so often, don't we, with other people. It's harder to see it with yourself. But we see other people going into a mad situation, and they say, oh, yeah, but I saw this uh, coincidence, or this was the hand of God, and I feel, therefore, that I should marry this person who is an alcoholic, or I should, therefore, do this or do that or the other. And we think, well, yeah, I don't doubt there was a coincidence there, but... Uh, I don't think that God actually, by that, intends you to do what you're intending to do. And, uh, you know, we see it so clearly in others as they mess their lives up, but, uh, I mean, we, we, we can do the same ourselves, and we do do the same ourselves all, all the time. So this reading of providence, this reading of, uh, well, this attempt to attach meaning to events at the time they happen is, a, is something which you've got to be very, very careful of now as I say I read it but these guys were just uh, misreading the coincidence and saying this is therefore the word of God when actually God had not stated that and uh, verse 6 David says the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master so he obviously takes the view that well actually what you're saying is not the word of God Um, it's very hard to go the way of grace it really is, because David's own men, his own friends, these are the guys who have been loyal and faithful to him in this terrible existence he was having. They were telling him that he ought to kill Saul, and this is, can't you see it, David, this is the hand of God. And uh, you know, he, he was saying, no, no, I will show grace to him, I will not do this. And it was It's very difficult, even to lose your own close friends often by by going the way of grace it really is very very difficult Uh, in verse 7 it says that David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul but um, stayed, I mean some versions say rebuked Uh, you look the word up in the Hebrew it means to tear apart he laid into his men to stop them killing Saul now I mean uh, this is not at all passive this is a really a falling out with his own friends and supporters. And you can see later on in chapter 26, verse 8, uh, when Abishai is, is with David, and there they are standing over the body of Saul while he's in a deep sleep from the Lord. And Abishai says, You know, let me kill him, please, please, please. And David says, No, 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 don't put your hand on the Lord's anointed. So again, it shows really that David's own followers, even later, did not get the point at all. And so, to go the way of grace, of radical forgiveness of your enemy, even though it doesn't, you know, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, it's not the same as uh, trust, um, this is a lonely way, and you will often lose your friends, even those within the family of God, by doing this so many times in my own life it's worked out that way that uh, oh, somebody messes up and oh well we have to disfellowship him we have to separate from her we can't have her in the meeting anymore and I have always said no I will live by principle I will not do that to another human being who is redeemed in Christ and a beloved child of God and you just watch it happen friendships of a lifetime your own family all that stuff just goes out of the window because you want to live the life of grace and this is what David was, was at here no question about it uh, he, he, there's this separation between him and his men he uh, lays into them he tears into them to stop them doing this uh, and considering they'd been so faithful to him in one sense that there they were uh, hiding out with him in a cave supporting him against Saul it was a very difficult uh, very difficult thing for him anyway so then David cuts off the hem of Saul's garment <coughs> Numbers 15, 38 and 39 says that the Israelite was to have this blue ribbon around the bottom of their garment so that they would look upon it and remember to keep all the commandments of God but in 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 28 uh, Saul is actually noted for not having kept the commandments of the Lord so David knew that and that's why he cuts off this blue riband from the garment of of Saul it's I think as if he's saying look Saul I forgive you and in one sense I love you but I am not blind to your unspirituality (coughs) to the way you will not live by the commandments of God and so I will cut off that blue riband because you are not obedient you have no intention of being obedient to God's principles you also notice the way each of these uh, incidents in chapter 24 and 26 conclude that David takes something that belongs to Saul and then later he says here here I am Saul I've got your your uh, um, your jug or here he, he says I, I've got uh, that uh, the blue ribbon off your skirt and David and the silver pants oh yeah you're a good guy I'm so sorry David but David doesn't naively say ah oh, ok then that's fine oh yeah you say that it's all ok and no he goes back and still lives in the wilderness in other words he doesn't trust Saul and in this whole issue of forgiveness uh, we just had a super series of talks by uh, Steve Gretton about, about this and it's still very much in my, in my mind um, in this whole business of forgiveness we sometimes think I can't forgive because I could never trust that person again but that is not actually the case you can forgive but trusting and active relationship and reconciliation in the sense of living together in practice uh, no, that, that is a different thing and uh, the person has got to show themselves trustworthy. And so David forgives Saul in that sense. But he is not blind to Saul's unspirituality. Anyway, verse 5, David's heart smites him. But he had not done anything wrong. But he has a bad conscience about it. And I think you uh, get that again in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, where again we read that phrase that David's heart smote him for numbering Israel. Well, numbering Israel was not actually a sin in itself. There was specific provision for that under the law, just they had to pay uh, a tax when they did so, which the people at that time didn't do, and therefore they had the plague upon them. Why then does David's heart smite him for doing something which is not in itself wrong, be it numbering Israel or cutting off the hem of Saul's garment? Well, you could say, well, conscience is not ultimately reliable. That's the lesson. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4, In my conscience I don't know anything negative against myself, but I am not thereby justified. Our justification is ultimately in that day when we appear before the Lord at the day of judgment. And from that point of view, that is a fair comment to make, that conscience is not ultimately reliable. And to say, well, it's okay in my conscience, does not mean it is okay. Because when we come to the day of judgment, it's not that our conscience is going to jump out of us and stand there in front of us and judge us, according to how far we lived according to it. Jesus says, there is one thing that will judge you, and that is the word that I have spoken. That will judge us at the last day. And yet, as we know also from Paul's teaching about foods and those kind of issues, there is a degree to which conscience does play a part in uh, in our sort of morality and whether ultimately our actions are acceptable. But it's dangerous to say that because my conscience says it's okay, it therefore is okay. And. <laughs> here in in David's example you could take the lesson the other way that because my conscience tells me I'm a bad person I have done so wrong that does not necessarily mean that that is the case I have this theory that um, we often feel bad about doing things that are not sins at all and yet we don't feel bad about doing a lot of things which actually are sins in, in God's book if you see what I mean however I I think that, maybe deeper than all that, I think what comes out of this to me is that, okay, the two things we're talking about here, cutting off the skirt of Saul's garment and numbering Israel, the two incidents where we're told that David's heart smote him, um, okay, there was nothing wrong with the actions in themselves, but David recognized, because he was spiritually perceptive, he recognized that beyond that, there is the question of motive and I think he must have felt that he had done those things from the wrong motive and uh, again there's a lesson there that we can do what appears on the surface okay or something that's not wrong at all and yet you can do it with the wrong motives and that is a sin now there's one other time where we meet this phrase uh, the heart smiting, my heart smote me, um, in the context of David. And it's in one of the Psalms, Psalm 102, verse 4, and reading around the context there in Psalm 102, this is when David's in the wilderness, he's chased by his enemies, uh, he feels like a lonely bird in the wilderness, just as he says to Saul here in 1 Samuel 24, that uh, verse 14, I'm a dead dog, I'm a flea he feels himself like an animal so the context is similar and he says Psalm 102 verse 4 my heart is smitten and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread so what I'm suggesting is that 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 verse there is to be connected with David's heart smiting him in the wilderness which we read about here in the historical record in 1 Samuel 24 verse 5 uh, when he his heart is smitten because of how he has cut off Saul's uh, Saul's uh, skirt so why then do we read that his heart was so smitten to the point that he forgets to eat his bread well I think it shows that it wasn't just a passing twang of conscience that he did it and then verse 6 he says to his men oh, uh, the Lord forbid that I should have done this unto my master I, I, and then well yes his conscience is awkward about it and and then he sort of play on sort of thing in life according to Psalm 102 verse 4 this got to such a point that he didn't want to eat he lost his appetite he was withered like grass because he'd done this and so when our conscience does jog us that you should not have done that that wasn't right was it well let it not be a passing twang of dis-ease with ourselves. You know, that's how you can read this, that David thought, oh hang, I shouldn't have done that, guys, should I? Oh dear. But, no, this continued with him for a period of time. So then, we can be forgiven by God and we can feel and know that forgiveness. But, that doesn't necessarily take away, or shouldn't take away, our sense of failure. Just as it doesn't within human relationships somebody may sin against you, you may sin against them, you genuinely forgive them or they genuinely forgive you uh, but there is in, on the side of the person who's failed, if they're genuine and humble, uh, a sense of uh, abiding failure that, that continues with them and that shouldn't be confused with the guilt, it's, it's not quite the same thing It's this uh, sense of failure as I'm calling it this is where we get the humility that God is so urgent that we should have this is the answer to all human pride this sense that I have not been and I have not done and spoken and acted as I should have done and yet God and others have forgiven me now this is what leads us as Hezekiah said to walk quietly all our days and so I think that David's heart smites him here but later on in Psalm 102 when he uh, gets to write all this down and reflect about all this and sing about it even those as, as psalms were with songs in their first instance um, he says that his heart was so smitten to the point that he forgot to eat his bread that he, he lost his appetite that this was not just a passing thing of the moment this smiting of conscience so then we come to verse 6, and, and he says, God forbid that I should stretch forth my hand upon my master, the Lord's anointed, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And you get this again in chapter 26 when he says to Abishai, Don't kill Saul because he's the anointed of the Lord. This obviously meant a huge amount to David that Saul had been anointed and he therefore obviously thought that if somebody was the anointed of the Lord you should not touch him, you should respect him very deeply simply because of that now as you know Christ means anointed 2 Corinthians one twenty-one: he that has anointed us is God now if we are in Christ we also are in the anointed we are also as Paul says there anointed. That means that everybody who has been baptised into Christ is the Lord's anointed and this huge respect which David showed to Saul therefore becomes an absolute challenge to us to relate to all those that have been baptised into Christ even if their behaviour is as awful as Saul's to behave to them with respect that wow That person whom I see walking towards me, that person from whom I have just received a horrible email, that person who has just done such evil to me, who persecutes me or whatever they have done, this person is the anointed of the Lord. And if we lose that perspective, we will spiral downwards into bitterness, uh, we will spiral downwards into complete inability to, to relate to our brethren so then really take that uh, and I, I think that um, although David's attitude doesn't really seem to have influenced his own men, I think it actually did influence at least one of Saul's followers and that was Saul's armour bearer because when Saul is mortally wounded and he says to his armour bearer "I'll oh, slay me because I don't want these uncircumcised to kill me, his armour bearer refused to and if you remember so it's in 1, Corinthians 10, uh, 1 Chronicles 10 uh, Saul falls on his own sword because his armour bearer wouldn't uh, wouldn't kill him. And why wouldn't the armour bearer kill him? Well, I think he was probably influenced by the example of David. Well, to wrap this up, Psalm 35, there's a, a quite surpassing passage there in Psalm 35 the whole psalm is talking about how God has uh, been with David and, and his wilderness persecutions and David's anger with Saul and those who persecuted him but in verse 14 David protests his love for Saul when he was sick I humbled my soul with fasting I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother I bowed myself heavily as one that mourneth for his mother so he could have picked a whole range of different uh, analogies here. He could have said that he mourned for Saul as a, a son mourns for his for his father, as a mother mourns for her son, as a father mourns for his son, as a father mourns for his daughter. But instead, he chose the image of as a man mourns for his mother. As a man, he says, well bows down himself heavily as one that mourns for his mother. And I I think the picture is of a a man in middle age, maybe with uh, his hair going grey and uh, his hairline receding, and there he is at the graveside of his mother, surrounded by friends and relatives, and he bows down heavily in his grief. Now, why does David choose this uh, particular uh, image of a man mourning for his mother. And I suspect it may be related to the fact that a man's grief for his mother is because in his time of losing her, he realizes that he should have appreciated her more. That is my my opinion and so I think that uh, David here in his mourning for Saul which he comments on in Psalm 35 is saying that he regrets that he did not appreciate more what was in Saul and yet the historical record makes it absolutely clear that Saul hated David. He may have loved him in a sense but he hated him ruined his life, smashed his marriage up, totally destroyed him and yet he can protest in Psalm 35:14 that he even felt bad that he did not appreciate more this man. Now, in that we have a huge challenge. We see the love of Christ, and it kind of blows our mind that the Lord Jesus could rise up to the level of love that He did, and we are to love as He loved us. That's the uh, that's the challenge, and so. Although that is the challenge, we we find it all so so, sort of heavy, and therefore we look to men. We look to human examples of love because they sort of uh, are a little bit less challenging, so we think. But then you come to Moses being willing to give his eternal life. Blot me, I pray you, out of your book that you've written so that Israel could go into the land. Now, that was a level of love that was something amazing. And here, this level of love that David reached for Saul. I mean, David was a man very much like us, very human, as we know. And yet, he could reach this level of love for his enemy. So, no longer can you and I be uh, passive, can we uh, be comfortably inactive, in just recognizing that there are people out there who we we can stand and all the rest of it. No, we have to do something with those feelings because the example of David, the example of Moses and above all the example of the Lord who was of our nature. We can't keep excusing ourselves that we are not Jesus. I mean, he is there as a living example to us not just as an icon to be looked at on the wall and respected from a distance he is a living example to us in daily hourly life in all these things we're left with a huge challenge that as we face the love of God as it was in Jesus and as it is in Jesus we cannot be passive we should now go forward deeply worried men and women in one sense and yet men and women deeply comforted because you can play a kind of logical game here that if men like David and Moses attained such an unusual level of love for their enemies their level of love was in fact a very very poor reflection Of the huge extent, the colossal extent of the love of Jesus for you and me.